Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, beginning at verse 22. Jesus walks on the water. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Before Will comes and speaks to us, um, if you are of younger years, or even if you're not, we're going to sit down here and we're going to make some boats. And Miriam is going to come and help. So if you'd like to, we're going to come and make some boats while Will speaks to us. Boat making at the front, that sounds good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. It is a light for our path. It is food for our soul. May it be so for us this morning. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Um, uh, I'm struck by the fact today as I'm sitting here, um, uh, next Sunday, literally, I I will be uh, in my parents' house. Um, we, uh, we travel back to Australia uh, this week and uh, don't return until the end of September. Uh, some of you know that my father passed away in May and so this time over the next five weeks is going to be uh, a necessary time of spending time with family and uh, doing all those things that need to happen in moments like these. But it also means that um, over the last few weeks I've found myself strangely, I've never, I've never been through a bereavement before. And uh, I hadn't quite been prepared for how it creeps up and grabs you. And one of the ways in which it's grabbed me is that I found myself introspecting. I've uh, found myself coming to grips with a whole bunch of memories that have come up from my childhood and my youth and from the years that followed on from that. And one of them has, has come up as I've been reading through the gospel reading for today that, that we've been looking at. And it's a story that comes from 31 years ago when I was 17 years old and uh, and I was young and full of angst and not all of it was bad. I had that youthful passion for life. I think some of us might still remember what what that's like. And 
I remember I went for a walk with a friend uh, in one of the forest reserves that were near the town where I went to school. And uh, like much of Tasmania, it's a wild and rugged place with this ravine, a gorge, with this lookout looking out over it. And, uh, and I stood there at the top of the cliff with this river raging along the bottom of this ravine with my friend. And it was towards the end of our schooling, like the last few weeks of our A-level type equivalent. And we were thinking ahead to university and what lay beyond it and the sorts of things that we would do, the ways in which we would invincibly conquer the world and in the ways in which that would be a good thing excitement, adventure, and assured victory lay before us. And as we were talking, a summer storm let loose. It'd been brooding in one of those sort of big clouds, and then suddenly it hits, and the wind roared down the ravine, and it was sideways rain, and it hit us full force as we stood at the top of the cliff. And it was vigorous and energetic, face-stingingly powerful and it blew a wind into a wind the wind blew a, a flame into being in me and I remember standing there and yelling at it like some defeated foe bring it on bring it on you won't stop me storm I was 17 <laughs> youth really is wasted on the young isn't it <laughs> Uh, Like most of us in the room, most of us here, since that day, I've been through many more storms, and I've discovered that not all of them have warm winds and invigoration. They don't come with sideways rain and an inspirational view, and they don't all come with victory. Often they come with hurt and injury. They come with sickness and pain and failure. They come with fear and anxiety and trauma and grief. And I don't need to tell you my stories in order to illustrate this because I'm pretty sure we all have stories of our own. The storms of life happen and they hurt. Now my point here isn't to be morose or to bleed in front of you in my season of grief. But as we come alongside our gospel reading for today, I want to make sure we're dealing in reality here. What does this picture of Jesus walking on the water, this description of our Lord and Saviour, what does that have to do with our real, real lives? So let's unpack the story for a moment. It's a famous story. It's actually a shorter part of a larger narrative which begins in the passage we read last week, which starts in the passage before the passage last week where John the Baptist is killed. And so it's a story that begins with tragedy and with grief and with Jesus feeling the need to go to some place solitary and weather it. He wants to go and focus on the Father, to go to some deserted place. But it's also a story that includes neediness. As Jesus goes to find some alone time, the people follow him and Jesus, moved by compassion, extends himself towards them and he spends hours and hours healing them. And then at the end of the day, he and his disciples find themselves 
with 5,000 families in the middle of the desert and no food. And so we have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They all ate and were satisfied. We saw this last week. And it's at this point that Jesus says to his disciples, guys, you go on ahead. I'll dismiss the crowd. Then I'll go up this mountain and pray. He finally gets his alone time. And so here's the scene. Jesus is on the mountainside, alone, and down, perhaps he can see them, I'm pretty sure he can, down on the Sea of Galilee, about three or so miles from shore, the boat with all his friends is in trouble. And it shouldn't be, really. The crossing the disciples were taken would normally go quite close to shore, but the wind has caught them. And the wind and the waves are against them and they're being blown out to sea. And of course we know the story. The disciples battle the wind. Jesus goes to them to encourage and help them. Literally he walks on the water and says, take courage, it's okay, don't be afraid. And then there's this interaction with Peter. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. And there's, there's a bit of ambiguity here. We're not sure where Peter is coming from. Is Peter becoming, is Peter a bit cynical? Is he saying, ah, oh, is it really you, Lord? If it's you, prove it. Tell me to come out and I'll walk on the water too. Or is Peter being faithful? Lord, I want to come to you. Just call me and I can do this. Or perhaps he's being a bit thrill-seeking, reckless. I can do it too, Lord. Bring me out there. Because Jesus didn't actually ask him to. He didn't say, come on, Peter. Nevertheless, Jesus does call him and all is well until the looming storm overwhelms Peter's senses and he begins to sink. And Jesus catches him and chastises him. Why did you doubt? And they all get into the boat three miles from land and the storm dies down. So clearly it's an amazing story. No wonder at the end they worshipped him. A strong word to use. They worshipped him. Truly you are the son of God. An amazing story. But what's it got to do with us? Like Shrek and cake and onions, this story has layers. I'm showing someone just clapped for that one. That's good. Um, clearly we can read the story at one level, and we often read Bible stories like this. We read it as some sort of fable, and fables are stories with a moral. So what's the moral of this story? It would be something like, in Sunday school we'd learn something like, be like Peter, be like Peter, have faith in Jesus and get out of the boat. And also, don't be like Peter, don't be afraid, have more than a little faith, and don't sink. And that's not necessarily a bad reading. There's an author called John Ortberg, who's, who I, I appreciate. He runs wrote a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat, which explores how faith and risk-taking go hand in hand. Jesus calls us to a dynamic life of trust. Nothing wrong with that. But there's another layer here, something that attaches to some of the themes that Matthew is trying to communicate to us. And it's more of a symbolic layer. There's real symbolism in this story. It's a symbolism that, a symbolism that begins with John the Baptist, 
John the Baptist is a recognized prophet of God. He's upheld as some sort of Elijah who brings God's truth. And John the Baptist spoke of the one who would baptize God's people, not just in water, but in a refining fire. And having raised that question through John the Baptist, Matthew tells us story after story which shows that Jesus is the one who fulfills that hope. So who else in the Bible feeds God's people in the wilderness with miraculous bread? Who else in the Bible leads God's people through the water as if it's dry ground? They're stories of Moses. So if John the Baptist is Elijah, Jesus is Moses. Matthew is saying one greater than Moses is here. And if we bring ourselves alongside this symbolic layer, we find ourselves finding ourselves not so much in the place of Peter and whether or not I've got the uh, moral fortitude to get out of the boat, but who we come alongside who they're representing. Twelve disciples, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve baskets of bread left over. God, through Moses, brings his people out of captivity and forms them into a free people, feeding them and taking them through the waters of rebirth, teaching them how to be a nation that makes disciples of all other nations. Well, this is how Jesus is going to be with his generation, with his twelve friends, and with the multitude that came to him, and that's how he's going to be with us. And perhaps that is what lets us bring our storms alongside this storm in this story. God is making us his people through the waters of rebirth. And in this story, that rebirth looks like a storm. Now, if I find myself at that place, there's a part of me that doesn't want this story. There's something in me that rebels against the storm. I rebel against the Moses story. Part of me does that. I mean, it's great that God rescued his people from slavery and took them into a place of prosperity, but why didn't he just do it? Why doesn't he just take them there? Why does there have to be a hard-hearted pharaoh? Why lead them to the shore of the Red Sea so they find themselves trapped? Why lead them into the desert where they feel hunger before they get the handout of manna? Why the storms? Why the brink of defeat? So wearisome. Why should John the Baptist be killed in this story? He did his duty. He was faithful And he gets his head chopped off. And what's with the mob of needy people who didn't have the forethought to organise lunch? Why is that needed? And fine, send the disciples off to get to the next place. But what's the point of this wind? What's it actually prove? I mean, God, come on. Isn't it enough that I pray my prayers and come to church and call myself a Christian? And sure, send me enough adversity so that I can prove that I'm hashtag blessed like a 17-year-old and know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I know the plans he has for me, declares the Lord. 
and I can rest on every verse taken out of context. And all those other victories that I might have. Send me the storms, Lord, that I can laugh at like a teenager. I'll even get out of the boat and run with victorious triumph through those sorts of storms. But not storms like this, Lord. Not the ones where I sink, or where I'm hungry, or anxious, or bewildered, or bereaved. And alongside the symbolism of the story, I can bring that little rebellion that's in me, that wondering I have. And I find myself going, I wonder perhaps if it's the sinking that is the pathway to what is precious in this story. I think Jesus' words are full of kindness when he chastises his friend, O ye of little faith. And I think that kindness is worth heeding. Look again at the function of this story at that symbolic layer. What was happening when Moses led the people through the Red Sea? They weren't being tested. They weren't having something proven in them. The Red Sea is the Jewish baptism. They were passing through the waters. They were being reborn. They had come to the end of themselves. They go in as slaves. They come out as free people. Something dies that day at the Red Sea and something is reborn. The waters of that crisis are labour pains. They are born again through some sort of death because they, the slavery in them needs to not just be defeated but to die. And in this story on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples are passing through the waters. And it's not just an inconvenience, a challenge to leap over. Something dies that day. It's a ghost, they cry, as they face the end of themselves. Lord, save me, Peter cries, as he is undone and unraveled, and then somehow remade. And the end result of it isn't some form of empowerment or even confidence. It's worship. Truly you are the Son of God, born again of water and spirit. Reminds me of yet another storm that we know of in the biblical story. Jonah faces a storm which leads in the end to him being cast into the waters where he goes into the belly of the whale. Imagery literally used, that Jesus used for his death. And there in the belly of the whale where he is undone, gestated as if being reborn, what does Jonah do? He worships just like these disciples do in the middle of their storm. Most times when I get up to speak on Sundays, can I tell you I'm preaching to myself more than anyone else. I'm on a journey of discovery into the Word of God. And part of the blessing and privilege of my job is I get to share that journey and we can share in that together. So I'm not putting this on you. I simply want to show you what I think I can see in this current story. And I want to see if you can see it too. Today the word of God convicts me of something. 
It convicts me of the fact that I want the road of life to be easier. I want the things I care about to win. I want success and I want things to go right. I learned long ago that teenage bravado isn't enough to get that done. That's not reality. And I learned long ago that pushing and striving and beating and winning is not what makes things work. It not, it's not what makes our church, our career, our families, our lives become what they need to be to pursue the way of God. Rather, the way of Christ is to, he tells us, take up my cross and follow him, to continually die to self and to be reborn, a perpetual reliance on him of being undone and remade. I have a baptism to undergo, Jesus says, speaking of his death, but it's a death that leads to resurrection. And that dynamic of dying and being remade is to be our daily bread. I don't believe that God causes directly the storms in our life, just like I don't think God directly caused the wind in Galilee or the aggression of Pharaoh's armies, just like I don't think he causes directly the bereavements and the cancers and the political tumult and the state of this world. But these are the storms where he comes to us. Yes, to comfort us, take courage, don't be afraid, but also to baptise us so that from whatever, whatever dies in us through these storms may become eternal life, a life of worship that may abound. In the Christian tradition, we are baptised once, but we are immersed in life every day. So no longer do I look at the storms and say, bring it on, let's win this war, let's succeed. I normally run away. I still get frightened by the wind and the waves. I'm still overwhelmed by my own powerlessness, my own propensity to sink and to drown. But that's where the rebirth happens. Maybe even in a prayer. Turn towards the storm. Tell me to come to you, even through this wind. Jesus, be my solitary place. For me personally, that's how I'm preaching to myself today. I wonder what you can see. It's what I want to take with me to Australia and all I need to do there as I pass through some grief and the valley of the shadow of death. But that's just me. But I think this word might be for all of us. So can I invite us all into a baptism of sorts this day? In whatever we are immersed in right now, especially if it's hard, come to the water is to find him in the storm perhaps and there in the end to find ourselves in worship. So we're going to seek to express that. We're going to pray in a minute and we're going to pray in a minute and we're going to gather around the Lord's table where we're reminded of his death and resurrection. Before we do that, there's a song to sing and the way in which we're going to bring ourselves to the Lord is going to echo our baptismal vows. But for now, why don't we hear this song? If you know it, sing it. If not, sit in it. Oh, I'm going to